Welcome to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm your host, Megan McCorkle. This podcast series features conversations with leaders and innovators having a positive impact in our city. Let's get started. Your journey starts here. It's been one of America's leading orchestras for over a century. Now the baton is passed at the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra and their new conductor is making history. Jonathan Hayward is the BSO's first black music director and at just 31 years old, the youngest. He sits down with the Free To Be More podcast to talk about his history-making appointment, the future of the BSO, and the power of music. Jonathan Hayward, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Jonathan, you've worked and been all over the world. So what was it about Baltimore that made you want to come here? Well, as music director, everything really has to start on stage. And for me, from the first downbeat of the rehearsal process um, with the fantastic orchestra, I knew that we had a chemistry. And with that chemistry, we would be able to really you know, support a community, support artistic excellence on stage with, you know, with these wonderful concerts. So for me, it was it was really the hook was was with the orchestra. Really, mm-hmm. from there, I think getting to know Baltimore, getting to know the community, getting to know the richness of the the culture and arts within the community was certainly another real pull for me. Mm-hmm. I, I want to go back to uh, when you were a young guy growing up in the South. When was the first time that you realized music was such a passion for you? Well, it all really started at a public music school system program. I was 10 when I really got into classical music. Mm-hmm. And I think realizing my real passion for it and sort of my need for it at that stage of my life, I realized that I, I really wanted to commit. And so when I got into an art school as well, my passion for it really just deepened and continued. And I, I, at that point, by high school, I was. I was pretty dead set on making sure this was my career, really, more than anything else. Mm-hmm. I know the first thing you did was play the cello. How did you get started playing the cello? Yeah, it's it's a bit random, actually. Um, <laughs> I was My intention was to play the violin, but I came to the day of picking up our instruments, and there was a line out the door for the violins, and <laughs> no one was in the cello line. So being the very impatient, what did they say, 10-year-old that I was, I decided to pick a different instrument very spontaneously and um, thus really began the cello. So, uh, yeah, as many corners in my career and life, it it was a very serendipitous moment. Mm -hmm. That's always good, happy accidents, always. (laughs) Indeed, (laughs) indeed. Were your parents into classical music? How did you get exposed to it to start? No, in short, neither of them listened to classical music. They're both lovers of music. My dad, jazz, my mother more sort of rock, really. Mm -hmm. But yeah, classical music really came from, again, the public music school system. Being Uh exposed to orchestral music was really, the first time was actually playing it, not really listening to it. And then, you know, as I got more curious and interested, I then would dip into Trostland Symphony Orchestra rehearsals on a regular basis, because I, at this point, was starting to really find it incredibly fascinating, um, Mm -hmm. the idea of the orchestral world. So yeah, it really in a lot of ways came to me through various activities and curiosity that I had, really. Mm-hmm. 
I've heard the story, but I, I want you to be able to tell it to our listeners about the first time you ever conducted and how you got into conducting. That also happened at a pretty young age. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was I was in eighth grade, and the story goes: we had a substitute teacher who was not musically inclined, but we needed to get through a rehearsal because we had a concert. So he decided to put all of our names in a hat, shuffle it around, and yes, I was the one who got picked. And it was terrifying. I remember, you know, I, n- I never really liked being in front of people, uh, not in front of my peers. But what I was amazed at and still remain curious about is this idea of the score, which is the music that the conductor reads from. And this idea that through many voices, you make one. And I think that's really the beauty of orchestral music. Your career has taken you all over Europe. Talk to me a little bit about your experience overseas. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting in a way. I guess I started my career in Europe and mm-hmm. I attended the Royal Academy of Music. And while I was there, I won a young conductor's competition called the Bouzonson Conducting Competition in this little gorgeous town of um, south southeast uh, France called Bouzonson. And that kind of started everything. At that point, I had an agent. Shortly thereafter, I won an audition to become the assistant conductor of the Halle Orchestra in Manchester in the United Kingdom. I was there for three years and really learned the trade, for lack of a better way of putting it, um, learned by experience. And I think it's an amazing place to learn in a way. I mean, that there's pluses and minuses to everything, but there's a sort of, to be able to explore the various different cultures of classical music in many different countries was an amazing experience, particularly at the start of my career. And there's a sense of flexibility. And, you know, I do believe that French orchestras breathe differently than German orchestras. German orchestras breathe differently than UK orchestras, et cetera, et cetera. And to be able to kind of adapt at that stage in your career is really, really important. And so I had that experience from the jump and I'm forever grateful for it. Your appointment here at the BSO is historic in more ways than one as the first music director who's a person of color, the BSO, as well as the youngest. Is there a pressure to that, an excitement to that? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, it's one of these questions. I mean, I'm so focused in on what I'm doing that I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's exciting because I, it's happening. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it's as I put down, you know, at the age of 14, what I want to do when I grow up and it was become a music director of a major symphony orchestra, and here I am. And um, there's just an excitement to get to work, you know, to finally react upon my dreams, goals, and aspirations of what I've always wanted to do, Um, particularly in the States. Being a music director has, I think, a huge responsibility of being an advocate for music in a community. And it's one of these beautiful things, particularly being at the BSO, it's a connector. And I take that really seriously, that commitment really, really seriously. And we've already made some great strides in this. And what's beautiful is that within just a year, or just a little over a year since my announcement, I feel that the musicians, the staff, the administration, the board were all really aligned to this goal and aspiration of making sure that we become an orchestra for Baltimore and the state of Maryland. I know uh, the BSO recently got a grant from the state to perform many more shows all over the state. What does it mean to you to be able to reach 
audiences that the BSO has maybe never been able to reach before? Well, it's exactly why I signed one of the other reasons why I signed up for the job. I'm currently working also as a chief conductor of the Nordwest Deutsche Philharmonie, which is a German orchestra in the, in the Northwest region. And its sole kind of goal and mission is to make music for very small towns within that region. No other U.S. orchestra is doing this, not to this degree, not to this dedication. It's a testament to the artistic integrity and the vision of this orchestra to be able to spread accessibility through this tool, through an initiative that, to be quite frank, no other orchestra is doing, is exactly what I love about the organization and the orchestra, this sort of drive for accessibility, which I think is so pertinent, has, was always pertinent to me growing up. Again, you know, if I didn't have that accessibility myself, I don't think we'd be speaking. It's being able to really branch out that accessibility to all and for people to realize that this incredible art form is for everyone. The Free to Be More podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, featuring the library's marquee speaker series, Pratt Writers Live, and the Brown Lecture Series, welcoming speakers like Stacey Abrams, Misty Copeland, Dee Watkins, James McBride, and more. Check out prattlibrary.org to see who is visiting the Pratt next. You were talking about accessibility. I mean, there's a lot of people who maybe feel like the symphony is not accessible for them with the price tag and the type of music. How do you feel like this tour will really change that? I know that a lot of the shows are like low to no cost and they're in different parts of the state. Yeah, I mean, I like to also think that actually, whilst the Mayhoff itself may be a place where people kind of look on the outside and think, oh, I'm not sure. The accessibility is pretty good so far um, in that we do offer a sort of selected amount of low ticket offers and uh, particularly last minute rush tickets and, and et cetera. But having said that, of course, we can always do better with this. And this is something that we're really investigating. But the summer, the summer sort of tool, I think, invites a different aspect. You know, the idea that Symphony Orchestra doesn't just belong in its gorgeous hall that we have at the Meyerhof or at mm-hmm. Strathmore. and indeed belongs within the community. And being able to really explore this is artistically really rewarding for me, trying out different repertoire that will also appeal to different scenarios, you know, being able to play the fantastic sounds of 1812 Overture outside wow. with potentially, you know, fake cannon blasts is, is always an exhilarating experience that no <laughs> one can really leave, you know, that space thinking, oh, that's still boring. I mean, you know, Tchaikovsky writing cannons for a piece, you know, how can you not be excited about that? And it's this sort of intentionality behind our programming. And when we are at site specific places, that really drives me and, and gets me excited about becoming the hook for potential growing audience members. I saw the 23-24 season. It looks like the tagline is a hall for all, which really gets to that point about the Meyerhoff being accessible to everyone. What would you say to someone who maybe walks by every single day and and has not come in yet? What's inside for them? Well, I think I'm so excited about my first season, first Mm -hmm. and foremost, because I think there has been so much intentional thought about how we can make people feel that there is a program for everyone this coming up season. And I think it's it starts with our wonderful idea of kind of experimenting with how you feel from the second you walk into the concert hall. With that, we are making some serious partnerships within the community to 
have pre-concert performances beforehand to, in a way, prepare yourself for what's to come. And I think this sort of element and elements like this sort of demystify, perhaps, the idea of what you should do in the concert hall and what should be expected when you first walk into a space like the Meyerhoff. Being able to, you know, the wonderful thing about the Meyerhoff is it's, it's got glass right around to the around the corners and in, in the atrium lobby. And so you can't mistake, you can't not see these performances from outside. And so we're hoping that that will become a welcoming element to the overall experience, really. Mm-hmm. Welcoming right from the beginning. <laughs> exactly, precisely. As a conductor of color, how do you navigate and address the lack of diversity in the classical music world? And what steps do you feel like need to be taken and could be taken in this leadership role you have here in Baltimore? So systemically, I think the best way to tackle this is from a strong, intentional education program. Uh And of course, I have inherited one of the best education programs I think that is in the country, uh, the BSO Orchids. Marin has set up one of the most effective programs, I think, uh, that I've ever really come across. And that was, to be honest, another huge hook and attraction to the job because I take, of course, education really seriously, having, you know, basically owed my entire career to the public music school system. Mm-hmm. So during my tenure, I really plan on being heavily involved into what the next 15 years, as we just celebrated 15 years last week with a gorgeous celebration in the Meyerhoff, which I was taking part in conducting 280 students on the Meyerhoff stage, which was an exhilarating experience uh, for so many reasons. But, you know, being able to really systemically understand how we structure this program to not only gain, you know, more numbers, which is, of course, is nice, but to really get to the depth of why music education transforms a kid's life. And I think that that's where it starts. You know, I think that we have to always intentionally think about that because systemically that will just only percolate and grow in the way that I want to see it grow. For anyone who's listening to this and is not familiar with the Orchids program, can you explain a little bit of what the program is? Yeah, so it's a mixture of after-school programs and different initiatives throughout Baltimore. Um, We have site-specific programs, and the students come in and basically have an after-school program where they have private lessons, group ensemble lessons, and coachings even from our very own BSL musicians. And like I said, this was started 15 years ago by Marin Alsop, which is just an amazing endeavor. And you mentioned this a little bit, but we are in an era where in public schools, things like arts and music education are some of the first things that are being cut. How important do you feel like it is for all students to at least have the opportunity to experience the arts and music? Incredibly important. Mm -hmm. So much so that just last week I was meeting with music educators of Maryland brainstorming ideas of what the BSO can do to help support not only the students, but also the teachers and the parents, because it takes a village to to really stress the importance of what music can do for a child's life. And whilst, you know, of course, I'd love to see those children come to the BSO, play in the BSO, become BSO musicians, yes, but it's not really all about that. As we know, music education can 
really support a child's development. Statistics are out there. We all know this. Um, being able to really make sure that the people who make the decisions know this is a part of our mission at the BSO because we see that that's where the fault really lies. Mm-hmm. And I think that takes, again, people just simply coming to a concert and understanding the importance of and the effects that it has on children, but also just in as society and as a whole. And I think that that's something that um, we're really heavily investigating within the music education department. I've seen you quoted as saying something, I'm paraphrasing, so I'm sure I'll get it wrong, but saying something along the lines of doctors can heal the body, but music heals the soul. Tell me a little bit about what you mean from that. You know, it's something I think about every single time, that moment before I get on stage. You know, life is always busy and can bring a lot of tribulations in in your own life and, and difficulties. But there's a moment that I really take that quote in before I step on the podium. And it's because I believe that musicians in a symphony orchestra have the power to move people in a way that can systemically change their life. You know, it's it was seen last just last week when I encountered a few members of the audience after a very moving performance of the Tchaikovsky Sixth Symphony, the Pathetic Symphony, with our lovely musicians who played such a brilliant performance. Front row is people in tears. Mm-hmm. And it's the fact that we can we can really move people. And it's our job as musicians. You know, I don't Yes, we're entertainment, and I and I see that. I, you know, of course, we we can accept that. However, I think there's a, something about the importance of community within music that we can really help shape. You know, a society, a community, um, and I think that that's really my passion and my goal. It's interesting because you even hear psychologists talk, and they say one of the ways to start your day well is to play your favorite song and dance mm. along to it to start your day. And you do find that that changes the whole direction of where your day might have started and is going. The fascination behind music and neuroscience, don't even mm. get me started. I, I, mean, it's, I mean, I could talk to you all day about it, but yeah. there are so many links that, you know, the human brain, we don't actually know very much about, you know, even doctors don't know about a lot mm-hmm. of what the human brain. It's the sort of this enigma in a lot of ways. But what we do know is that with someone with dementia, that if you play a song that they've known, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, then they suddenly get their speech back. There is a power in what we do. And for me, it's that with that power comes huge responsibility, which is why I I take the artistic excellence of what we do on stage so, so seriously. Because if we do it in a way that is so true, authentic, That's when people feel it. And that's when people can be healed by it. We're opening up the Central Library after hours for a special new program series, Final Fridays. Join us for interest-based activities on the last Friday of every month. See what's happening this Final Friday at prattlibrary.org. You've mentioned Marin Alsop, your predecessor. Uh, She was certainly also quite the trailblazers, the first female conductor of any major U.S. orchestra. What are some of the lessons that you feel like you've learned from her? I think her deep appreciation and understanding that education is our future um, is something that I have certainly learned. And I hope to continue within her legacy um, and, and really 
her ability also to really connect with the community. I just hope that my tenure can really continue that beautiful um, evolution that she's been able to create. And I think, yeah, that's for me is the is probably the most pertinent, I think, of all of all that I've learned so far. You've been conducting for quite a while now, more than a decade. Do you still get nervous before you go up there? You said that you didn't like to be out in front, but this is the most out front position in the whole orchestra. What happens right before you go on stage? I get terribly nervous all the time. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, when when you love what you do so much, of course you do. I mean, and I talk to young musicians, young conductors about this all the time. Getting nervous isn't the problem. It's about how you kind of take it on. You know, I I think it's good to get nervous. It means you care. And it means that what you're about to do is something that you're, you're so into. And you have to be with music. You have to be almost all consumed by it in order for people to feel it, I think. If you're removed, it's sort of a half-in, half-out situation. It's, and that's, A, not the person that I am, but also not the musician that I am. Um, so I, I certainly I certainly still get nervous, without a doubt. But I think I, I'm always, you know, it's that moment of, A, uh, I always really have a very quiet hour before concerts and very slow hour, because, and I take it to myself and put a do not disturb sign on my dressing room because it's very important for me to stay centralized through such mm-hmm. busy times and busy days. But, you know, in that moment where, you know, I have to get on stage, it's, again, I remind myself why I'm doing what I'm doing. And it doesn't matter, you know, it no longer matters about me. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if I'm nervous anymore. What's solely important is making sure that I connect with the musicians so we connect to the artistry, so we connect to the audience. And that's, that's the beauty, again, of what we're able, what our responsibilities as conductors and orchestral musicians. And you talked a little bit about that chemistry. How are you working now? And you said there was instant chemistry with the BSO, but how do you work to kind of build on that, especially at the start of this five-year contract? It's a great question. It's exactly what I did three weeks ago. Um, <laughs> it just came in, you know, to start as music director designate. Um, that was, you know, just just three weeks ago. And mm-hmm. what's amazing is that it's still there. You know, that chemistry is still there, even though the three weeks ago, I, I was only conducting them for the third time. And it's really magical. They want to play so well for me. And and I wanted, of course, uh, you know, show and be a part of that collaborative sense. And there's just a sense of, we know where we want to go as an orchestra. And the orchestra has been through a lot. There is now a huge new horizon in that we're hiring a lot more musicians, which is filling out the complement, which is exciting growth for the orchestra. Just last week, I, I hired about five musicians. And that's a thrilling experience because we're really building towards where we want to go and where, how we see our artistic vision, our artistic sound, this identity of the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra sound is something we're all trying to understand and cultivate together. Uh-huh. But the fact that it's so beautifully collaborative so far and um, it feels like it will always be that way, really, because the only thing that is important to both me and the musicians is artistic excellence on stage so we can communicate with our audience. And so that's been really exciting. And I left really on Sunday, not really wanting to go, but to want to do more even to keep going. And that's always a good sign. So, mm-hmm. so here's, uh, here's to the future. I guess. Well, it's good because you get five years of more. <laughs> exactly. Indeed. 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 <laughs> Um, I have heard and seen that uh, for sometimes big performances, you like to wear a lucky pair of shoes. Can you tell me a little bit about that? <laughs> yes. So 
the story goes with my lucky pair of Converse. Um, <laughs> I first started wearing them, actually, because one day while I was in the UK conducting some school concerts, I forgot my pair of shoes. And I always get dressed way too late for him to notice that I forgot. <laughs> so it was five minutes before the concert and I, and I realized. And so I had to go out in Chuck Taylor's and the response was immense. We got <laughs> so many cards with my red shoe on them after that performance that I realized that it was one of these moments of breaking the barriers, you know, uh, that someone could realize and relate in a way to me and vicariously then through to the musicians and the music. And to me, that's really special. This idea of trying to break boundaries again for people to realize that, you know, this music again is for everyone. And we're all just human beings creating this fantastic, you know, world of, of classical music. Um, so it's stuck. And um, yeah, I, I do it on occasion, definitely. When you're outside of work, what other kind of music do you wind up listening to? Jazz, always jazz. Um, anything from Coltrane to Nina Simone to Miles Davis, that era of jazz is is my heart. And uh, the time I can really relax because sadly, since classical music is my life, my brain is always turned on uh, <laughs> with that. So I, I can't really turn that part of my brain off, but jazz all the way. In February, you guys announced what the 23-24 season would look like. What can people expect from this new season of the BSO? Well, what I love really about this season is kind of reflecting on some of the familiar works that that are normally played and the exciting works. But what accompany these works often are pieces by composers that people may have never heard. Up-and-coming young composers particularly is a nice special highlight. And I'm just really thrilled to be able to bring new voices to our stage, which so far has really proven to be very exciting and so thrilling. And to hear the response of people has been really, really, really exciting. So I think it's about this idea of partnering the more familiar works with works that people may not have heard before. If there's a young person out there like you when you were in school who has a passion for classical music and interest in it, what kind of advice would you give them about pursuing that? Remain curious. This world of classical music has something for everyone. And just because there's maybe one composer that you may not like or enjoy, there is so much, there's so much music within the repertoire that is so unique, so special, and so telling in so many different ways that, you know, I I think being curious and open-minded to all the different facets and elements of what classical music has to offer keeps you in the zone and enjoying what, you know, what this wonderful art form has to offer. And my final question, I ask um, a lot of people this, but you've been in Baltimore for just a short period of time now, but what gives you hope for the future in Baltimore? And what are you hoping that the future role, the growing role of the BSO is in the city? I think what gives me hope is this palpable sense of excitement, not only from our organization, but from outside, you know, mm -hmm. to be able to have Governor Westmore, First Lady, mm -hmm. Scott, all in one room for a press conference for our very thrilling and exciting summer tour tells me a lot about the state of Maryland and also the city of Baltimore and its alignment, its commitment to arts and culture. I think we're on the cusp of something very exciting with the sort of shift 
particularly after COVID, and being able to really think about what's important for a community. It's been so thrilling over the past three weeks to feel that, really deeply feel that. And I think it's up to us now, and we are so ready to deliver on that sort of excitement, essentially. Well, Jonathan Hayward, thank you so much for your time today, and welcome to Baltimore. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much. Don't have time to stop by the library? No problem. You can download ebooks, e audiobooks, movies, music, and more to your devices with your Pratt Library card for free. Sign up for a Pratt eCard at prattlibrary.org and start downloading today. I'm Megan McCorkle, and you've been listening to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. You can follow The Pratt on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next month for another free-to-be-more conversation. Thanks for listening.